0: This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation
1: We should all be very impressed with ourselves. We do things every single day like buttoning our shirt or writing a text on our phone that requires this incredibly complex coordination of dozens of muscles. And so I think if we can get a better understanding the way the different circuits interact to coordinate these behaviors, we're going to be in a better place for, for diagnosis and treatment.
2: As a functional neurosurgeon, I try to alter human physiology you know, for the better decrease pain or to treat movement disorders. So for me, understanding a circuit is just about how to improve the treatment sort of in a very direct fashion.
0: That's husband and wife Ayman Azim and Sharona ben Both are fascinated by how the brain controls our movements. But while Ayman is doing basic research, mostly with surprisingly dexterous mice, Sharona is in the operating room. That's where she's employing deep brain stimulation to treat patients with Parkinson's disease and other movement disorders. This is really going to be interesting for me because you both work on similar things, but at opposite ends of the spectrum in a way, right? I mean, how would you describe that generally? And then I want to hear from Sharona, how you describe
1: it. Yeah. um, You know, I think Sharona and I for a long time now have both had a fascination with the nervous system. And like you said, we come at it from opposite ends of the spectrum. I'm very much a basic scientist. I want to understand the mechanisms. I want to understand how it evolved and how it works. Her primary motivation is to help people. And I think one of the exciting things is as technology and research advances, as we're able to find more and more middle ground, at least to have conversation and hopefully actually develop new ways to diagnose and treat disorders by merging the basic science and and the bedside treatment somewhere in the middle.
0: So, Sharona, Ayman tries to figure out how things work in the nervous system, and then when they go wrong, you try to fix it. Is that is that sort of uh, in the neighborhood?
2: Yeah, I would say so. Um, you know, Iman is really motivated by discovery and, you know, just understanding of the basic circuitry. You know, and for me, it's a much more simple approach. You know, I perform surgeries. I do procedures for all sorts of things. And as a functional neurosurgeon, I try to alter human physiology, you know, for the better, cerebral physiology for the better, either to decrease pain or to treat movement disorders or to treat epilepsy. And uh, I have a keen understanding of the limitations of our current therapeutic options. And my research is, is quite motivated by how we make those better. It's, it's very simple.
0: So, I mean, these circuits are really complicated, aren't they? I mean, I, I imagine you're dealing with billions of connections before you get something as simple as lifting a cup.
1: You're absolutely right. It's it's pretty astonishing how complicated it is. And, you know, I mean, I, I think I'm fundamentally interested in movement. So movement is the primary driving force that has... Um, that explains the evolution of our nervous system. Without appropriate interaction with the world through movement of your body, there's no reproduction, there's no eating food, there's there's no propagation of the species. And so when you think about the brain and how it's built in the context that it was, that it has evolved to generate behaviors uh, that enable effective interaction with the environment, then I think movement becomes really fascinating.
0: You work a lot on dexterity and I think your work has made me aware a little bit more of how dexterous humans are compared to other animals.
1: Yeah, it's really, in many ways, it represents the pinnacle of what our motor systems are able to achieve. And I often will start a talk showing an image or a movie of somebody doing something phenomenal, a musician or an athlete. But then I follow that up saying we should all be very impressed with ourselves. We do things every single day like buttoning our shirt or writing a text on our phone that requires this incredibly complex coordination of dozens of muscles. And we don't really know how the nervous system achieves the speed and precision of these movements. And so that's why in my lab, we have tried to approach those questions by trying to take the nervous system apart into its constituent circuits, try to figure out what each of these circuits and pathways is doing to contribute to these complex behaviors there's no doubt that humans are the pinnacle of dexterity of all the species we know in in, in most respects. Uh, I mean, again, you look at a musician or an athlete and they do these these astounding things with their bodies. And we don't have very good explanations of how our nervous system is able to achieve that. And that's one of the reasons we're motivated to pursue this in the lab, because rodents and, and primates, including humans, share the majority of the components of the nervous system, including the motor system. So what's really interesting is figuring out the huge amount that we share, that we have in common, but then also identifying the small amount that's different. Because that small amount that's different can help explain where the pretty astonishing human dexterity comes from.
0: And when you're talking about dexterity, the mouse model seems to be n- not not too bad as a source of information because mice are surprisingly dexterous. Absolutely. They are to me anyway. I mean, i I, I've read how a mouse can get open a little nutshell and, and mm-hmm. that kind of
1: thing they catch crickets and break them open with their little hand they do they do amazingly dexterous things in the wild
0: well I'll never mind the wild I have a friend who said they found a mouse in the washing machine <laughs> and I can't, I can't figure out how the mouse climbed up the side of the washing machine it's
1: <laughs> were they doing the laundry <laughs>
0: You know, Sharona Iman mentioned the dexterity needed to button a shirt. I'm real aware of that because uh, I have Parkinson's now and buttoning a shirt or tying my shoelaces takes more concentration than uh, it used to take. Is your work in surgery, you do deep brain stimulation, right? So does that deal mainly with motor problems like using your hands rather than tremor?
2: So, yeah. So deep brain stimulation is now FDA approved for a variety of indications. From the perspective of movement disorders, it's FDA approved for essential tremor. um, And, of course, for Parkinson's, Um, it's also FDA approved under a humanitarian device exemption for dystonia. Um, You know, as far as for Parkinson's specifically, um, you know our targets in the subthalamic nucleus, and also there's another you know direct target in the globus pallidus.
0: Where where are those? What do they do? I'm not up on those terms. What what are they?
2: So we have a set of nuclei deep within our brain called the basal ganglia, and they help to coordinate movement. Um, you know, along with the thalamus and the cortex, and so it actually is kind of interesting because. You know, we didn't decide to stimulate there because we knew what they did. <laughs> we decided to stimulate there out of serendipity. You know, first we saw the results of strokes. And we saw, hey, you know, Parkinson's symptoms get better or a tremor gets better. But the patient also ends up being hemiplegic, which is uh, undesirable. So let's try to. Wait,
0: you mean, are you saying with a stroke, the Parkinson's symptoms get better?
2: Yeah. So, you know, um, Initially, I have to
0: go back to eating French fries.
2: <laughs> so initially, um, you know, very astute neurologists, uh, I think around the 1800s, started noticing that stroke specifically of uh, an artery called the anterior carotid artery. Um, they could target some sometimes places in the thalamus or basal ganglia and create small strokes in the region that we currently stimulate. And that improved patients' Parkinson's symptoms you know, and that led us to a world of lesioning procedures where, um, you know, before we really had stimulation technology, we would go in there specifically at that time into the either the thalamus or the globus pallidus and actually create a lesion. Um, and that would improve the Parkinson's symptoms, specifically the motor symptoms, of course, of Parkinson's disease. It really, of course, you know, as you probably know, not until the uh, the 90s that uh, deep brain stimulation, the concept of stimulating these circuits rather than lesioning them, really uh, was uh, FDA approved. And, and now we mostly perform um, deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease.
0: So that's interesting. You do, I was. I think I was under the impression that deep brain stimulation involved destroying particular cells, but it just stimulates them?
2: Exactly. So it modulates that circuit, right? So it is interesting. What, what's kind of fascinating about it is that inserting that stimulator and turning it on, you know, at a certain frequency and pulse width um, mimics the effects we see from a lesion. Only, you know, it's safer. It's something that we can adjust. And now with newer technology, we even have more and better ways to adjust, you know, where exactly within that small part of the brain we're stimulating in order to maximize effects and minimize side effects. Um, and, you know, and of course it's reversible because we're, we're not actually destroying any tissue.
0: But we, what I don't get is, it just maybe as a side dish, but it, it is interesting. On the way down, you're sticking a probe through the brain, right? And on the way down to the part you want to stimulate, aren't you messing up a few neurons on the way? <laughs>
2: A few, but you'd be surprised at how few we are messing up. And this is a question I get all the time because you know my job oftentimes involves placing small objects into the brain in a stereotactic manner along a tract, whether it's a laser catheter for a laser procedure or or a stimulator um, or a recording electrode. And you would be surprised at how, with these electrodes, which are small, you know, you have to remember they're only. millimeters in diameter for a dbs electrode and for some of these other electrodes i implant they're even smaller less than a millimeter um, in diameter as long as you know we don't encounter a complication like for example hitting a blood vessel and causing a hemorrhage um, as long as that doesn't happen which you know our whole training has led us to perfect the mechanisms to ensure that that doesn't happen then it is actually quite surprising that we have minimal effect
0: on the tissue that we pass through. I I understand that. I may have this wrong, but the way I understand it, we have the uh, dexterity that we have partly because we have feedback from the environment. Is that right? Feedback did, uh, from the do, environment. Do we share that with
1: other animals? Yeah, I, th- I think every animal, so movement in all of these species really relies on complex and constant interaction between the output pathways that get the body to move and feedback from the environment or feedback from the body that keeps us informed about what's happening. And this interaction is constant. And this is the primary theme of most of the projects in my lab. How do these, all of these output and feedback pathways interact? One place where humans... Are unique as some of the connections of these output and feedback pathways seem to be different so there's a long-running hypothesis that the connections from the part of the cortex called the motor cortex that go down to the spinal cord are different in in certain primates including humans where a subset of, the, of these neurons can talk directly to the motor neurons which are the output of our nervous system to get us to move so mice for example don't have these direct connections humans do and and The hypothesis is that direct connection gives you precise control over dexterity in your finger.
0: So help me understand this better a little. It's a direct connection between what and what?
1: It's the evolutionarily the newest part of our brain. It's the cerebral cortex. A part of it is involved in motor control. And in all of these species I'm describing, mice included, there are projections from that part of the brain down to evolutionarily older parts of the nervous system, including the spinal cord. And in the spinal cord, the only conduit to get out to the muscles, the only output are the motor neurons. In fact, these are the the neurons that die in in Lou Gehrig's disease or or ALS. And that's why it's such a devastating disease because you lose the ability to control your muscles. Um, And so the question is, how do you control the motor neuron activity and therefore muscle contraction with speed and precision And, and and a hypothesis that's still being investigated is that humans have developed a new way to do it, a more direct route So you can sort of pull the levers uh, with more, I think, immediacy and more accuracy. But it's something that's, it's tough to investigate again, because the access in humans is limited. And so we're left to a lot of hypotheses based on anatomy and based on behavior. Whereas in our animal models, we can really go in and turn different circuits on and off and see what they do. Mm. It just so happens that mice don't have that direct connection. So we don't know exactly if that's what that, what that circuit in humans does.
0: When we come back from our break, Ayman Azim and Sharona Ben Haim tell me about their plans to combine their skills to find better ways to treat one of the most intractable conditions in medicine, chronic debilitating pain. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, Neuroscience. And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Ayman Azim and Sharona Benheim. I mean, you you're figuring out what does what in the brain, what the circuits are responsible for, and the role of various neurons working dynamically together. I guess, in a way, Sharona is looking at your work to some extent. Is this true, Sharona, to find out where you want to stick the stimulator?
2: We're not there yet, but we're working on that. You know, right now, one of my big interests is actually using things like deep brain stimulation technology in other areas of the brain for other indications specifically for example chronic pain so you know pain is a very interesting process it really engages so many different parts of the brain which reflects its very kind of multi-dimensional nature and there you know the direct question is where can we stimulate to make this treatment more effective? Because we don't know the answer to that. Right now, we do perform sort of a, on an off-label basis, some deep brain stimulation procedures for chronic pain, but they're not as effective as we'd like for them to be. So there's clearly something we need to learn, something we can do better. And so I've engaged Ayman, um to help me understand different regions to stimulate. Specifically, we've looked at, at circuits in the spinal cord.
0: That's interesting. Does that have anything to do with that long, long neuron you've been finding out about, Iman?
1: Oh, yeah. So I think you're referring to these neurons called proprio-spinal neurons. Um, those neurons, we think, are primarily involved in conveying information from long distance from one part of the spinal cord to another or back up to the brain to help facilitate movements. But There are other very long pathways, including the one is talking about, that transmit pain from the body, from the periphery. So from your limb, for example, into the spinal cord connects to neurons that project from the spinal cord all the way up to to regions in the brain that are going to be responsible for processing and transmitting those pain signals. And so, you know, ultimately everything has to pass through these conduits, through these circuits. And we spent a lot of time in my lab using various techniques to record from and manipulate the circuits in the spinal cord and the brain to try to figure out how they contribute to either uh, sensory perception or behavioral output. And so the more we learn about it, the more I think you can have an informed and targeted way in a human where you don't have the kind of luxury to experiment like we do um, to actually, uh, you know, go in and try to ameliorate the pain that a patient's feeling.
0: In a certain kind of experiment, I think I, I think I've read someplace that you're able to get a response from a human that a mouse can't give you. The human can say, "I feel that," or "I don't like that," or "Don't don't do that again." Yeah. <laughs> but the mouse can't do that.
2: As a neurosurgeon, you know, I treat all sorts of diseases of the brain and the spinal cord, and so you know, we see the consequences of some of the perturbations of that circuit. For example, um, if someone has uh, herniated discs in their neck, you know, and it becomes very severe such that it affects the spinal cord, uh, the cervical spinal cord, you know, those patients can, for example, lose dexterity of their hands. Mm. Also, oftentimes with a whole host of other findings, increased reflexes, some imbalance in their walking, but yeah. And, you know, from our side of the spectrum, from the medicine side, we don't really know what causes that. We're able to see an MRI, examine a patient and uh, make that connection. And then from a surgical perspective, we know what to do to try to correct it or at least prevent it from progressing. But we don't understand the circuits, you know, and that's why we need Ayman to explain that to us.
0: You, you just mentioned a damaged disc in the neck. I've never had a damaged disc, but I understand they're extremely painful and pain is one of the things you're working on. But. How do you handle chronic pain like that? How are you able to help?
2: There are a lot of things we don't understand about chronic pain conditions that are not as straightforward as I have a herniated disc and now, you know, a surgeon can fix it. You know, there are people who have diffuse pain in their body or people who have localized pain and they've had the surgeries and they've had the, you know, procedures and the conservative management And it's been 10, 15 years, and they still have this debilitating pain that prevents them from living their lives. Um, Those patients are the ones where we consider intervening in a different way, um, where we consider kind of a subset of procedures that we have in neurosurgery that are focused in the field of pain, pain neurosurgery. There aren't too many of us neurosurgeons who really focus on actually treating chronic pain with this unique subset of procedures. Um, but they, you know, they range and oftentimes can involve um, modulating either spinal cord circuits and in rare cases also circuits in the brain. You know, we can basically, um, in those patients with debilitating chronic pain, oftentimes, you know, have had it for a long time and have failed every other step to actually try to correct the primary problem. Sometimes we'll go in and actually try to alter the signal itself. So we'll alter the way the signal is transmitted. Let's say from a painful leg, we'll try to alter the way that signal is tr- transmitted from the leg to its interpretation in the brain. And if you can imagine, there are a lot of different parts of the nervous system we can actually target to to in that pathway. And they start from the periphery. You know, actually trying to modulate, for example, the skin of the region that's affected. Um, uh, to the spinal cord circuits, where we sometimes put electrodes over the dorsal spinal cord to modulate the transmission of the pain um, as it ascends in the spinal cord. And then, um, you know, th- there are really so many points of intervention, um, but we can go up to the thalamus and insert a stimulator actually into the thalamus, which is this, you know, main relay center of pain signals as they ascend from the body and are then uh, interpreted by the brain, various portions of the brain um, and so on and so forth. I mean, we've gone so far um, as to investigate not just modulating what we call the sensory discriminative aspects of pain, meaning like how much pain I actually feel, but actually even looking at the emotional affective components of pain, you know um, how you feel about the pain So in in this is a very, very rare procedure, but in some cases specifically indicated, for example, for end of life cancer related pain that's diffuse and throughout the body, um, we can uh, lesion a certain part of the brain that will separate how much pain a patient feels. You know, they'll still say, I feel eight out of 10 pain and how much that pain bothers them. So they'll say, I still feel the pain, but I'm no longer bothered by this pain.
0: That's an amazing thing to say. I can't imagine knowing I'm in pain, 8 out of 10, and not being bothered by it. Have you talked with the the patients who have undergone this treatment to find out what their experience is? How, How do they describe the experience of feeling pain but not caring about it. It's it's, it's such a hard thing for me to understand.
2: It it is really interesting. And, you know, first and foremost, these patients are so relieved. Um, They're so much happier. Um, And, you know, you can actually see this this weight um, lifted off of them. And uh, it's it's a really interesting um, concept of how pain, specifically chronic pain, um, uh, is interpreted by different aspects of our brain. You know, pain is not just, I feel pain, but it's how much I fear that pain, uh, how much I think about that pain. And these kind of emotional, affective components of pain processing have really kind of just recently become a new, a new concept in, in targeting pain circuitry. Now, of course, this is all uh, on a research, from a research basis, it's, it's not... It's not yet something that's FDA approved, but it is something that could, if we understand it a little bit better, I think become really, really effective.
0: That's an amazing, an amazing procedure. I was interested before when you were talking about bringing your work together. Are you are you planning that? In what way do you, will you bring your work together?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it starts with Discussions over the dinner table at home, which is great. Um, coming up with ideas, ways that we can uh, find some sort of common ground where maybe some of the techniques and technology we've developed in my lab can can be used to address some of the the questions that she's interested in. And usually, um, the collaborations we talk about are not just between us, but facilitated by by other colleagues and friends, for example, engineers who are developing new technologies that can be used in both animals and in humans. And so the idea is, you know, on one end, sometimes it's an idea that's inspired by by her clinical needs. So she was mentioning pain treatment before. And so if there's a new treatment she is interested in trying to assess whether it works, it's useful to try that out in a place like my laboratory first as a proof of concept before you know, going to the to the larger steps of trying to bring it to to, to primates and, and humans specifically. Sometimes the ideas start on the other end of the spectrum. I'm really interested in something that only she can provide, which is, is this access to the human brain. In epilepsy patients, she she's trying to find the focus of the seizure. And to do that, she's recording from their brain. And you often have to do that for a week or two, which gives you this access to to the most complex Thing in the known universe, as far as I know, um, to to ask basic science questions, and so the ideas sort of come up first. Uh, Usually, in science, the next step is to try to put together some way to get it funded, and so you know we're writing grants together, and uh, and and and, you know we're both early in our careers, establishing our, our our you know my lab and her practice here in San Diego. But the the I think projects are are starting to to emerge. And it's going to be an exciting next five to 10 years, I think.
2: It's kind of funny. You know, you talk about how different our approach is, you know, when we collaborate and Iman is uh, advising me or, or we're planning an experiment together, even just the brainstorming part of it. It's funny how I, I constantly have to bring him down a notch. You know, he said, well, let's inject G Camp or, or, you know, let's do an optogenetics experiment and we're going to turn off this circuit and then turn on this circuit. And I'm like, wait, hold on. This is meant to be directly translated to humans you know we have one tool <laughs> it's a stimulator and <laughs> uh, we need to learn how to use it so backtrack and uh, uh let's get more basic
1: yeah you, you, you often have to find a common ground between really wanting to know the mechanism and just settling for something that works to help somebody <laughs> and you know sometimes those are two different motivations and and we share them both but i think we're on different ends of the spectrum
0: <laughs> that's what makes it fun to talk to you both You make me wonder when you talk about working together on a project, you make me wonder about a more personal aspect coming from two ends of the spectrum of the work you do. How did you meet? You you came from even more diverse backgrounds. I think, Iman, you you started out studying philosophy, right, before you you got into science. Did Did you plunge straight into medicine and science, Sharona?
2: I actually studied in undergraduate. I studied um, psychology and uh, and then you know molecular biology with uh, with an emphasis on neuroscience. So I, I was always interested in uh, in the mind and the brain and yeah. uh, and and also Social. actually women's studies is <laughs> the other thing uh, I studied.
0: Uh, good. So did you, did you meet uh, in the philosophy class or, or <laughs> psychology class? How did, you, how did you get together? Because you, it sounds like, like uh, a Marie and Pierre Curie relationship here where you're going to come up with something together that's going to be groundbreaking.
2: So uh, we met in the break room of our uh, respective laboratories at the Massachusetts General Hospital. I was doing a research fellowship in between medical school and starting my residency in the lab of a functional neurosurgeon. And, uh, you know, we were investigating uh, deep brain stimulation in, uh, uh, you know, different regions of the basal ganglia. And uh, and Iman, whose lab did nothing related to that, (laughs) was uh, next door. And so uh, we met while having a coffee break.
1: Yeah, it's, it's pretty serendipitous that our two labs at the time were right next to each other and shared a break room. And I, to this day, I still joke that the most important piece of equipment you can buy in your lab is the coffee machine.
0: <laughs> it was a meeting of minds in, in, in the truest sense. We, uh, we're coming close to the end of our time together, but we always end our conversations with seven quick questions that invite Quick answers, especially because there are two of you answering. Whoever wants to answer first, go ahead. What was the first thing you remember being curious about? Space. Space? How about you, Sharona? The brain. Well, you started early.
1: (laughs) It took me a while to get (laughs) here.
0: Yeah. (laughs) What made you want to be a scientist?
1: I, as you mentioned, I'm passionate about philosophy, and science gave me a way to do experiments to try to answer some questions.
0: Yeah, because science, philosophy tends to be kind of general and guesswork, as far as I can tell.
1: I mean, it's it's fundamental, but I, for me personally, I, I like to break down to simpler problems and do experiments. And in philosophy, it's, at least the questions of the mind, it's it's a little bit more right. Uh, yeah, tougher to do that.
0: How about you, Sharona?
2: Well, for me, it's interesting because my interest in science came after my interest in medicine. And so, um, you know, for me, it's just a very direct relationship of wanting to understand ways to make treatments better.
0: What part of your research do you enjoy doing the most?
1: I enjoy the brainstorming sessions Uh, with my lab the most, which COVID is really really cut into. So I'm really eager to be around my lab again in person in front of a big whiteboard.
0: And brainstorming must make your dinner conversations fun with Sharona. How about you, Sharona? What what part of the research do you enjoy the most?
2: I mean, you know, when... When things actually work, <laughs> you know, that very first moment when you actually have an experiment and you all the pieces are in place and, you know, you actually get a result that confirms a hypothesis, there's kind of no feeling like it. The,
0: the next question is in that same vein, only a little more specific. As a scientist, what was the best moment you've ever had?
1: I think... Each time I'm given the opportunity to continue to do what I love. So getting this position was a pretty fantastic moment because I was trusted to run a lab and and start implementing some of my ideas. So every time that I, I'm given a vote of confidence to do more experiments.
0: Uh, I see you searching for, for India. <laughs> what about you?
2: I still am waiting for the moment. I am... Um... <laughs> <laughs> I have an idea of what it can be and what it should be but it's, it hasn't arrived yet
0: so maybe maybe this next question is easier to answer so far what's been your worst moment
1: oh there's been a lot of failed experiments late night <laughs> after two to three months of trying something and it fails miserably those are tough days but uh, you have to bounce back science is difficult you're trying to do something some, that nobody's ever done before
2: for me, it's pretty harsh when you can't convince people uh, that <laughs> that your ideas are good. So, <laughs> I'd say you know, getting back um, the reviews to one of my first NIH grants was was pretty harsh, <laughs> but uh, also a great learning experience. Uh, and like Ivan said, you have to bounce back. That's just what science is.
0: So that that really paves the way for the next to last question: What gives you confidence
1: that? Not just my lab, but all of the brilliant colleagues around me—that we're making steady progress. That you see it manifested not just in our scientific discussions, but in the real world. So the fact that even though it's really hard, we are moving forward proves to me that we're on the right path.
2: And for me, it's pretty clearly just uh, being able to have a vision of of what could be. You know, how the field could change, how a therapy can significantly improve um, knowing that that's possible and sort of within reach uh, is uh, is definitely motivating
0: okay this I know this last question is something you know you know i'm really concerned about, and i'm curious to know your take on it. How can we help more people enjoy a love of science?
1: Well, I think what you've been doing is fantastic teaching people like me and people like Sharona, more effective ways to communicate this passion we have and why we have it with with the public and with the world, I think, will make other people fall in love with science and what the goals are and what the process is. And so I think the more we learn to communicate our passion, not just our data, is, is a really big thing.
0: How about you, Sharona?
2: Do you mean the general public or how to attract more scientists? Because I think...
0: I think I mean the general public. Because probably that's one way to attract more people into science, if they could actually know it well enough to love it. How can we? It's like how can we be a good matchmaker?
2: I mean, I think it starts very early with education. Um, You know, making you know science can be so fun and interesting and valuable, and uh, um, you know that that can and should be taught you know, at an elementary school level. Um, I think that, that getting people involved in a, in a way that's meaningful very early in their lives um, can affect the way they think about it.
0: That's great. This has been so much fun talking with you both. And I'm, I've enjoyed hearing about your work from your different perspectives. And I wish you great good luck in getting together on projects where you can combine your, your forces Thanks so much for being with me today. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having us. It's been fantastic.
0: This has been Science, Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Ayman Azim is an assistant professor in the Molecular Neurobiology Laboratory at the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California. You can find details of his research on how our brains control our muscles at azim.salk.edu. Dot dot Sharona Benheim is assistant professor of surgery in the Neurosurgery Department of the University of California, San Diego, and an adjunct professor at the Salk Institute. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with cosmologist Shonda Prescott-Weinstein. As a black female professor, she's a rarity in her field. And she relishes the fact that everything that we see and experience in our lives, including the stars in the sky, are themselves rarities in the cosmos.
2: So the way that I like to present this to people is that we tend to think of ourselves as normal, like I am what's typical of matter in the universe, but actually we're what's strange about the universe because most of the structure in the universe, most of the matter in the universe, and most of our galaxy is actually made out of matter that's completely unlike us. And I think that this is like another way in which we are precious because we are what's weird. Um, We're not the likely scenario. The likely scenario is a bunch of dark matter that looks, and I put looks in air quotes because we can't see it, nothing like us.
0: Chanda Prescott-Weinstein and the tantalizing mystery of dark matter. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid, And to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.